0: Hi, I'm Doug Plout, and you're listening to Who Doesn't Love Lucy, a podcast celebrating the multi-camera sitcom. You're about to hear a theme song by Nick Searly and Lauren Molina, a group together known as the Skivvies, because they sing songs in their underwear. And let me tell you, their hearts are as warm and open as their bodies are... T- Wait, I can't say that.
1: Hey, you who doesn't love Lucy. It's true You're gonna see You'll see. see A sitcom legacy Come on along in
0: Hi, everyone, and I am so excited to have today's guest with me. This is the illustrious Eileen Graff. I like
1: a, illustrious.
0: Illustrious. I oh like Well, that. I, well, I always it. try to give people some good adjectives <laughs> when they come in, and that certainly applies to you. So let's just start right right where it went. Where did, where did you grow up?
1: In Queens. In Queens. In Queens, New York. I was born in Brooklyn, and we moved to Queens, and I was there until... Uh, Until I moved out after college, yeah.
0: Yeah, and where'd you go to college?
1: Ithaca College, upstate New York.
0: And then you came right back to New York because your first job on Broadway, we'll start with, was in...
1: I was in the pit of Promises Promises. I I went from graduating college to do summer stock on Martha's Vineyard, and it was during that summer stock engagement that I got the audition for Promises, so I flew to New York, did my audition, flew back to the vineyard, got the job... Left the vineyard and came back to New York to uh, understudy the leading lady and to be one of four pit singers, and as we used to call them.
0: And how involved was Neil Simon and Burt Bacharach in your in your experience?
1: At not not at all, not, not one at tiny all. So bit. So you never
0: got to meet them, or Mm-mm. but you did get to go on.
1: I'm yeah. told <laughs> for for Miss Kubelik. I did. You know when you replace. Uh, especially after shows been open for a few years, so they opened. Yeah. They were open for two years when I went into the show. So at that
0: point was it? Lorna left. You were understudying. No, or? I
1: understudied Jill O'Hara and then Jenny O'Hara. Ugh. Lorna came in um, as I left the show. They were going to replace Jenny. They did not take me. They took. They brought in Lorna, and I went out and did the national tour in that in that role.
0: In, as Fran, yeah. and you, who were you opposite?
1: I was opposite a wonderful actor named Ted Pugh, who is still around. He's an esteemed teacher now. He's upstate. I think he's in Chatham. I'm not quite sure. But Ted had done a million commercials, and he was a very popular actor in New York at the time. And we took the show out, along with Bob Holiday, who played Superman in It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's, it's super Superman. Um, and Barney Martin, who was... Um, who did he play on Seinfeld? Somebody's father.
0: I mean, but I do know he was Amos Hart in the and in Amos, production of, of course, Chicago. of course, yeah. And so you so you did that, right. and now we're just going to skip ahead because we get we want to get to the TV stuff. <laughs> so you ended up in Greece on Broadway, right?
1: Was in Greece for two and a half years, and then after that, I finally got to create a role in I Love My Wife, which was Cy Coleman and Michael Stewart, uh, musical comedy and And then after that I left that to move to LA And
0: I just one quick question about your stage work most it it seems as though most of your stage work in, indeed was focused on comedy mm-hmm. And so how did that influence your decision to move to Los Angeles and did it at all? And did you think I I, I feel so versed as a comedian you know maybe it's time to see what Los Angeles holds.
1: Yeah, sort of. Uh, the, the impetus to move actually was from my husband, Ben Lanzaroni, who is a very busy Wonderful. and popular studio musician in New York, wrote a lot of jingles, arranger, musical-directed shows. In fact, he was in the pit also of Grease. He was a piano player and conducted the band at Grease. And after I had been in I Love My Wife for about a year, Ben got the opportunity to go out to L.A. to write music for Happy Days. So after a year of being in the show, as my husband said, you didn't get a Tony nomination. Now it's a job. So it was. we felt it was the right time to make the move. And especially during I Love My Wife, which was a four-character comedy musical comedy with an onstage band, very small show, that was when I sort of knew that I belonged in television. I yeah. said, this is essentially a sitcom with music. I'm good at this. I think that I'm going to do fine if we go to L.A. So and I had done also a ton of commercials and I was very comfortable around cameras. It wasn't a it wasn't a big deal to me. So when Ben got the opportunity, we said, let's go, we'll go for three months and we'll see what happens. And we just never left.
0: And what happened when you got there?
1: A lot of stuff happened. He started writing music right away for some of our most beloved comedies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I. Pretty much started working right away. I mean, I did a lot of pilots. I did a lot of guesting. I had a couple of series. And it just, the work just kept coming in.
0: I want to talk about two specific credits that you guested on. Okay. That I think are so fascinating. You guested on Mork and Mindy. Yeah. And so what was that like with Robin Williams and Pam Dauber and the whole crew around there?
1: I did three episodes of Mork and Mindy. I did a standalone episode. And then I did a huge two-parter. Mm-hmm. where I played, uh, and Joe Regalbuto and I, who you might know from Murphy Brown, this mm-hmm. pre Murphy Brown, we played aliens from another planet and we were bad guys. and it, in the second in, in the first part, we ingratiate ourselves to Mork and Mindy and everybody. And then in the second part, we blow up the set. I mean, we literally blew up the set. And it was supposed to be the last episode of the season. The last shot episode, and then there was a change in schedule. So we blew up the set, and then they had to put it all back together again because they had to shoot another episode after our episode. But it was, it's fascinating working on, uh, it was fascinating doing Mork and Mindy and working with Robin and working with Jonathan Winters. You saw these crazy brilliant comedy minds and action like like jazz musicians just riffing off each other they could go on and on and on and on and with some very very smart directors who knew when to say okay we need to go now and being the incredible professionals and well-trained people that they are they would just snap right to it but the director was like um A fisherman almost, you know, you give them enough line, you give them enough time to get it all out of their systems. And then on the clock, because, you know, time is money, we have to go now. Okay, fine. Yeah,
0: I'm so so curious what it's like working with a mind like Robin Williams, who is so extraneous. All of a sudden I've always been so curious how that looked. When it had to be sort of edited to a twenty-two minute format, in the in the editing room or <laughs> on set, you know, because certainly the episodes are very funny. The
1: episodes it's... are great, and uh, Morgan Mindy was the first show, as far as I know, to add a fourth camera. We always used to do three camera comedy, and then when he came along, Gary Marshall added a fourth camera that just was Robin's camera because he never relaxed. He never, you know, sometimes when the camera's not on you and you're being naughty, you can sort of look around, see what's happening. But he never stopped improvising. He never stopped working. He never stopped creating. He was very serious about his work and very funny and unable to stop. So that's, as far as I know, from my experience of working at the time, that fourth camera was always running on him so that they could always pick stuff that he was doing. Because he would come up with stuff constantly, constantly. We'd have a scene with him and. You never quite knew which joke was going to come out, except when they said, "Okay, now we have to do now we have to do what's written," and then he would be more than happy to do what was written. But the the improvisation was thrilling, just thrilling.
0: He's and um, and to have that as an early experience. And did that yeah. come before or after um, Laverne and Shirley, for you?
1: Ah, uh, gosh. I don't remember. I think Laverne and Shirley was first, although I just, you know, everything happened within a couple of years of, of course, each other. Because you had,
0: well, it seems like now you had a working relationship in the Penny Gary Marshall yeah. stable.
1: Well, there was a fabulous casting director at Paramount, Bobby, whose last name escapes me now, but he was a big champion of mine and he brought me in all the time on stuff. So if I didn't get this one, this episode of something, he'd bring me in for that episode of something. Like I didn't get yeah. something on. Uh, this show. Like, I was up for a regular on Laverne and Shirley. I didn't get it. But then, yeah. so they gave me a Mork and Mindy. You know, so yeah. and that was all his doing. They just were very kind about about that kind of thing. I don't remember. They all happened within a certain amount of time of each other.
0: Yeah, and I do have one question now I want to move on to. You did what I assume what, in the Internet Movie Database calls a television movie, but it looks like a pilot <laughs> when I read the description. and. <laughs> So I'm 13th, 13th Avenue. Yeah. What was that? And Monsters in an Apartment. And...
1: It definitely was a pilot. Yeah. And it definitely was so much fun to do. We all played. I was a witch. Paul Kreppel was a vampire. Um, who else? I mean, it was a whole cast of characters with really good, funny actors who had... Tons of experience and tons of credits. We all played these monsters. I'm, you know, monst- uh, what do you call them? Oh, Ernie Sabella was a troll. And it was all all of this stuff. And we lived in an apartment building with Clive Revel, if, if memory serves. I should have looked up my who credits before straight, I.
0: Must have been the straight man. He yeah. was
1: the psychiatrist who lived in the building because. We had group therapy because we didn't fit in as all the outcasts in society because we weren't normal people. So we all lived in this building, 1313th Avenue, and then there was one normal dad and son who lived in the building. So it was all about our relationships and the, and the silly things that happened to us. It That's was really a lot. And I, in that one, I also destroyed the set. You just reminded me. I, you <laughs> Maybe did. Maybe it's me. I played a witch, and and I had a bad temper, And at one point, something annoyed me, and I sort of did a Barbara Eden, you know, wiggled my nose or something, and they had a fan that was like, um, for airplanes, I mean, it was the most gigantic fan I'd ever seen in my life, and I did whatever bit I did, and they turned Mm -hmm. on the fan, and the whole set just got completely destroyed, blown away. It was fun. That's so fantastic.
0: That's just the most So I'm curious because you brought up Barbara Eden. When you were when you were growing up, did you have did you have people you wanted to emulate because certainly at the time, especially blonde women who sort of who had a had a certain air and a star quality which you do were certainly there were <laughs> there were an abundance of them on, on television to to look up to and observe and you know.
1: Um I think the people on television that I liked the most were like Dinah Shore, you oh, know, because yeah. I'm a the singer. And I think of myself as a singer first because that's what I did first. I grew up singing, and acting kind of happened because it's much easier to get acting jobs than it is to become a recording star. You can go in and audition for a Broadway show, but to become a recording artist is, like, impossible. Clive, Dav-
0: Clive Davis isn't, isn't having, you he know, having He wasn't having me. Call. He was yeah. not
1: having me. So I loved to watch the singers. That's who I really gravitated to. And there were a couple of um, uh, actresses that I used to love that like did love American style. I love Joanne Flug. You know, there were a couple of uh, those kind of funny, quirky kind of stars that didn't get huge, gigantic recognition, but were really the good team players. You could throw them in any episode of anything and they would, they knew what they did. They knew their they knew how good they were at what they did, and they just did it. And, and I, I kind of like those actresses, but I never had a, and I never watched *I Dream of Jeannie*. I, you know, that was not my era. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what I'm what I'm saying. I did have a chance to work with Barbara Eden, though, in a TV movie. I played her sister in a TV movie, and we had a really good time. She's a great girl. What and, was
0: that? What was that? What was that like? What was that called? It
1: was called. Well, it was called a couple of things. It was called. I have to look back. I don't remember. Where's my phone? I'll look up what it was called. But it was a movie with Barbara Eden and um, John Forsyth. Uh-huh. It's sort of, when you look back on it now, it's sort Mr. of John like a- Forsyth. Who was a great guy. Yeah. Um, and it was a, it sort of was like a Hallmark Christmas movie, except it wasn't Christmas where they were mismatched, but they had to work together. And, and then in the so end, everybody lives happily ever after.
0: Most certainly a film of the week.
1: It was a movie of the week. Mm-hmm. But we had a lot of fun. And Forsyth, you know, was a really serious actor. He was actor studio. He was really and he was more than willing. Whenever I work with like a big star like that, I always try to say, tell me about when this happened or when that happened. And you get really wonderful stories about how they came to be who they are. And what what was important to them when they were starting their career, and I find that most people are more than happy, especially if you're on a set and you're all you all have your names on your director's chair and you all belong there, more than happy to share that information. I
0: think it's. I mean, I think it's so important now because I. One of the things that that's something that I certainly share, is that. When you meet, at, when you're working with actors who have been around for longer than you have. They've met people and they've worked with people who are just a quick little story about something something that happened to me, uh, in a class once. I was taking a class when I got to New York in uh, in scene study, and when this was a woman who was a dancer and had you know done a couple of like summer stock jo- jobs and a couple of tours. And I, I was asking her, just because I was fascinated, oh, so, like, what was your favorite job? And she goes, oh, well, I did a show called Anything Goes um, in Summerstock, and I played Bonnie. I was like, oh, I know, you know, that fun role. And I said, well, so... And she's, I said, was anyone fun in that with you? Because I know they sometimes get big stars. She got to play Bonnie in Anything Goes opposite the Moonface Martin of Sid Caesar. So, and... Well, how
1: cool is exa- that?
0: Exactly, but... I, I, but so often no one would think to ask. And right. So they wouldn't, so it's so important to know about these people and what they taught. Right. Because it, that's, that's what all of this is. It's what all of this comes from. Like I always, one of the things that I always tell people is that, you know, I'll use Lynn manuel Miranda as an example. L- everyone might know the entire oeuvre, uh, oeuvre. Of, well said. Of uh, Lynn manuel Miranda's work. But they might not know what came before it or what inspired it. But I so I guarantee you, Lynn Manuel Miranda can tell you every single nook and cranny of the songbook of Bob Merrill. Absolutely. Of, you know, Absolutely. all of these things. And so I think that's why not give yourself that education. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, giving yourself that education is kind of a joy in and of itself. Mm-hmm.
1: I think. Well, my favorite part about meeting Lin-Manuel Miranda, we went backstage after In the Heights because Priscilla Lopez was in it and she's an old friend. Mm -hmm. So we're walking up the stairs to go to Priscilla's dressing room and he sticks his head out and he sees me and he goes, Mrs. Belvedere. And I fell on the floor because he'd seen me on TV and he was Lynn Millwood and he gave me the biggest hug. He said, "Oh, I always used to watch you. I just love that show." And I and and it I I could not have been more flummoxed yeah. because he's who he is. And so we had a, actually had a chance to chat for a while. And I said, "You know what your show reminds me of?" I said, "It reminds me of Fiddler." He said, "Absolutely." He said, "I, I based a lot of it on Fiddler." I you said,
0: "You heard it here in the Heights yeah. based on Fiddler on the because, Roof." Because
1: but it comes back to what you said especially about Bob Merrill. It's like such a student of the form and knows everything about every show ever written and is smart enough to know what has resonated with us through the hundred years of musical theater. What do we love? What talks to us? Why do we love to go? Why do we love to laugh? What is it about it that we love to share? He's such a student of that and so smart and knows how to bring those things into his shows with a salute to the history of... Not only musical theater, but all music. Yeah. So it's cool. It's cool.
0: I mean, I think it's, that's just that's just what it's all about. So you mentioned Mr. Belvedere, so I think maybe it's time oh. we seg right okay. over into that. We're that wasn't on, on purpose.
1: It just happened. That's totally fine. <laughs> I thought that would be a
0: fabulous opportunity to do so. So how did Mr. Belvedere come into your life?
1: Well, back in the olden <laughs> days of when you used to audition for stuff for TV shows in L.A., They used to deliver scripts to your door, and you would, you know, your agent would say, read this, see if you want to go in for it. So we get the script on the door, and we read it, and my husband said, oh, don't even worry about it. This is your show. I said, what do you mean? He said, this has your name written all over it. Don't even worry about it. So So I went in, and I auditioned. It went really well. I had a callback. It went really well. I don't even remember if there was a second callback. Then we used to do what's called going to network. I'm sure they still, still do. That still happens. It. Yeah. So you go to the big ABC offices in Century City and there are the other one or two people that are up for your role and then you have to read in front of all the the big decision makers, all the network executives and studio executives and that's when they kind of decide who's actually going to get the part. So um, that went really well. Bob Eucher was there. He played my husband on the show, and he was very, very popular at the time. He had a very successful string of commercials for Miller Beer. He was very funny. He was one of Johnny Carson's favorite guests, and um, he was attached to the project. And when I went into the audition room and met him, it was so right. Yeah. The chemistry was just there. And he you just know he got me, I got him and I came out of it feeling, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. I think they'd be very smart to hire me. Yeah. And I don't know about you or or other people, but I've found that the jobs that I've gotten that were the easiest to get were the best jobs.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, because it,
1: it, you tick their boxes.
0: You tick their boxes in <laughs> and, and they and they want every they want you there they want, clearly. They want you. It's yeah. you know, I mean, I, that's absolutely yeah. true. the best The best jobs that I've ever had were the ones where I was basically chased out of the door. Right, right. And well, nobody's ever
1: chased me out of a door yet. That, that's happened but- <laughs> once, once. But at least it happened to you. I didn't get I
0: didn't get offered it, but I they said, "Can you come back in and do do this right. other thing?" Right. So yeah. Uh, and that was a and that was a that was a uh, new play I did upstate. Oh, cool. But anyway, so. I I have a three a three parter about Mr. Velvadere. Oh God! I, I hope I can ask. answer. You no. Know, so <laughs> one of these is so one of my experiences is that when you work on a project in any medium, the environment on the set, on the stage, in the rehearsal room, always starts from the top
1: down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So
0: you're you're there as the leading lady right. of this project. Um, how. Um, I've been with you in a social setting. I know, I know how warm and loving you are, and I know that some of that—that that is a skill set that translates to being a leading lady or a leading man or a director or a producer on a set. How did that? Um, what was that experience like for you to have to? to be leading a show, not just for a network, but for a group of people and for guest stars who are coming on and for this and that. And did you have any favorite guest stars and that sort of well, thing? Well, that's a lot of
1: questions all yeah. in one, Doug. Um, <laughs> I agree that the attitude on the set comes from the top down. It comes from the executive producer, and it and the executive producer is the one that determines how things are going to be. We had two great executive producers. They loved me. I loved them. We it goes down to the and so they only hire people who are gonna want to be there. So our producer our line producer was great. She was wonderful and her associate producer was wonderful. So they only hire people who are gonna make the thing the way they want it to be. Yeah. so if you've got really wonderful executives, everything else is sort of gonna fall into place. And our leader on the set actually was Bob eucher. Christopher Hewitt was the title character. And they were kind of equally divided. But Bob was the one who was attached to the show. So he was our dad. He was everybody's dad. And he took no nonsense from anybody. Everybody was equal on our set. The prop guy was as equal as the dresser, was as equal as the director, was as equal as the guy that pulled the cables, was as equal as me. There was no hierarchy on our set at all. And I think that made for a really happy set. Nobody was more important, although we knew on paper who was more important. We mm-hmm. knew who was making more money and who wasn't. But in, a, in the working environment, there it, that was not so. And I had done so—it's interesting what you say about guests when guest stars come on. I had done so much guesting. I probably had done more guesting than anybody else on the set because Bob had done none. He came from baseball, and he was always his own— product.
0: So he was just there. He was there.
1: Christopher had come from the stage and from features, and he'd done another series. He replaced um, Hervé Villachez on Fantasy Island, which is funny because Hervé, of course, was very small and Christopher was very big. So that was the joke. But I was the one that had really done a lot of guesting. So I knew what it was like walking onto a set, not knowing anybody. Um, And every set that I ever guested on, everybody was Lovely to me. Nobody ever treated me like I was less than. So that was our unspoken rule on our set. Whoever walks on our set is part of the family. You know, we're going to lunch. You coming to lunch? Here. You You want to have a. You want an orange? Here's an orange. So we thought that that was very important to keep everybody happy. A happy set is a productive set, Mm -hmm. and um, and we liked it. We we just liked the family feel. You've probably heard this a million times from people who are on shows that it becomes your second family. Of course,
0: you you know the names of all of everybody because yep. you're with with them, you know.
1: You're with them all the time.
0: Probably even, especially as a regular, more than you would on stage, unless you're spending right. seven or eight years in a right. in a show on Broadway. Right.
1: And we had kids, you know. Yeah. We were a family with mom and a dad and three kids, and we were very very well. The oldest, Rob Stone, was already an adult. He was already 21, playing a 16 year old, so we didn't need to parent him. And, um, the, but you feel very protective of them. Mm-hmm. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. We made sure all the rules were followed. We didn't work longer than we were supposed to work. We just, we didn't, if we didn't like a line they had to say, we thought it was risque or something that was inappropriate, we would quietly say, you, really guys, you know, you can mm-hmm. do better for them. And it was really nice. And I, and I still have a relationship with everybody. Um and, and the kids, you know, it's really funny. I've maintained some sort of relationship with almost all the kids who I've parented on TV. They're mm-hmm. still we're still in touch. I don't see them, but and my three kids from Mr. Belvedere, we always joke and say, if ever I need anything, they have to do it if I ask them because I was their mom for five and a half years. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so speaking of
0: children, what was the schedule like? Because you, you were a working mother. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, a working parent. It doesn't matter, mother or father. But um, you were a working parent working mm-hmm. a, um, what I what I assume was a reasonably humane schedule given that it was a, a, yeah. a half-hour comedy at the time because nowadays those they can run, you know, 12, 16 hours, uh, especially on the single cameras. Right. So
1: Our day was like, it was perfect. It was perfect. I had a little kid who was, you know, your, your um, one of your colleagues. Um, I was able to take her to work, to work, to school every day. My husband, as a composer, worked at home, so he was able to pick her up from school every day. We were extraordinarily lucky to have help at home. So mm-hmm. I would come home from work every day. There'd be dinner on the table. And you only work 22 weeks a year. Yeah. That was a full order. You know, now every show has a different number of episodes, but we worked three weeks on, one week off. So you work for three weeks and you have a week to catch up on all the stuff you didn't get. You didn't do. You go to the cleaners. You can do yeah. all. So it was an ex- a very, very normal life. We, we taped We had one long day a week, which was tape day. And um, Nika was all my daughter's name is Nika, Nika Graf lanzarone A fantastic, very talented, who has inherited
0: the comedy gene. One of my (laughs) favorite things. She's really funny. (laughs) And oh, oh God, I hope this doesn't embarrass her. But I will say this one of my favorite things about how comedy has to be generic. It has (laughs) to be. Because I remember the revival of Sweet Charity that she did Mm -hmm. just in. The tiniest little role. She she had a larger role in the first act as Ursula, but the tiniest little role in the second act as the receptionist at the Y M C A. <laughs> right? Wasn't she funny? And it was hilarious. And <laughs> on, and if I remember correctly, I I believe that that was singled out in in a number of in a number of the papers, <laughs> in a number of the reviews that the receptionist at the Y. And just with two or three lines, just so instantaneously, brought everything brought everything to life and. It, it has to be. It has to be genetic. Yeah,
1: she's pretty funny. Her timing is great. She's yeah. always been funny since she was a little tiny kid. She was always funny. Yeah, but she was she was always welcome on the set, always. And mm-hmm. she was a well behaved little kid. You know, she wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. And she used to um, at the beginning of the show, we would they would they always introduce the cast to the audience that the live audience that comes. They always and she would always come out with me. I would yeah. hold her and she would wave to the people. It was a precious, precious time of life and. it... You look at your success, and you you have to look at your success only as your own experience. You can't compare your success to somebody else's because somebody else is always going to be far more successful. Yeah. Far. And there are going to be people that are more talented than you who didn't have the same kind of success because of whatever this business is so wacko. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of friends who... I, I couldn't shine their shoes in terms of talent and capability and skills and chops, but I got lucky. Oh, so,
0: you're doing okay yourself. But,
1: no, no. I, the... I, I don't, I'm not denigrating what I can do. I'm just saying and I'm sure you do know people who were super talented that just never got the right break. It just happens. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I, I look at how incredibly lucky I was to have what I had when I had it. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful every day that to this day it gave me the life that I have now, that I can come and talk to you. Yeah, that I'm so grateful. I, I'm you're still here. invited to do stuff because people like talking about T V and they like talking about musicals and it's the luck of the draw. It really uh-huh. is.
0: So did you have any favorite guest stars who came to play, came to play with you on Mr. Belvedere or anyone who was particularly memorable for you?
1: Well, one of the ones that is particularly memorable was Robert Goulet. Robert playing himself? Playing himself. So we had Robert Goulet on for two or three episodes. So I knew if Goulet was going to be on, there was going to be an opportunity for singing. <laughs> oh,
0: fantastic. <laughs> so
1: one of my favorite, favorite episodes was Goulet. Um, my husband, George, his name was George in the show. It was a very silly co- sitcom. Mm-hmm. He electrocuted himself in the bathtub. He was a sports, uh, um, like on the news. He was the sports guy on the news in the in the in Mr. Belvedere. That was his job. Yeah. He electrocutes himself in the bathtub and comes out at it and says, "I really want to be a lounge singer." Okay, what kind of preposterous plot is that? But it gave them the chance to bring on Robert Goulet, and it gave me the chance to sing with Robert Goulet. So we had a nightclub scene, we had a lounge singer scene, and Ben, my husband, was the piano player and two of our friends, we had a bass player and a drummer, and I sang with Robert Goulet on an episode of Mr. Belvedere, and it was somewhat, we pre-recorded, it was fancy, it was just one of those things where you say, I'm not quite sure how this happened, but I'm really happy I'm here doing this. So that was great. Um, I love Doris Roberts was a guest. She played a judge on one episode that I had a lot to do, and she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Mary Jo Catlett came on. She was a great guest. Mary
0: Jo Catlett. Uh, uh, and, and I'm thrilled still, that
1: you know who Mary Jo, Mary jo is.
0: Uh, just and one of the and just one of one of the most uh, she's one of the people who as soon as you everyone will say, Mary Jo Cavill, who is that? And then you say, this is who it is. And you mm-hmm. show a very, very distinctive looking, very distinctive sounding, yes. very funny, very character funny. actress, very, very who, funny, um, I believe is still active. Because oh, yeah. I believe I did. I was in Los Angeles doing The Lion in Winter, and I believe she had just done it at the same theater. Blythe Spirit, mm. uh, the year before, The Colony. And, uh, yes, but, oh. I...
1: And she's a friend, you know, which is really mm-hmm. spectacular. You know, I, sometimes I think of some of the, the women. Oh, and
0: also the original Ernestina in Dolly, in Hello, Dolly.
1: Oh, my God. And you, you're right. She still does a lot of animation voices and... Uh, she, she, I can't remember what she was just what she just did, but she just did something like really big Disney thing. Yeah. Um, but she was a wonderful guest. You know, she's one of those people that you have a lot to learn from. You just sort of have to watch what she's doing, and see how she's figuring out the timing of this and the timing of that. Uh, and I'm trying. There was one other. Her name just goes out of my head. Oh, well, you know, this happens, Doug. When you get to be my age, you forget people's names. That's the thing I'm that still. happens. Yes. <laughs> That's what happens. But we had some wonderful, wonderful guests on the show that really brought a lot to the to the table. Donna Pescal uh, guested on our show. I just saw her the other night. Uh, and I had guested on her show. She had a show called Angie Mm-hmm. and I played a hooker in jail, and she, she gets arrested by mistake, so we have all this stuff to do in the jail. Rosemarie was a guest on Mr. Belvedere. Oh, and my. I, we have, had, you,
0: have you seen the, her documentary, Wait for Your laugh. I
1: still haven't seen it. I feel it's terrible. It's magnificent. I know that it's supposed to be just great. Yes. And we stayed in touch all through the years, and that was another very silly episode where my character ends up in jail, and we sang Do Re Mi, all the inmates. In the, I, I don't you know, when you say these things out loud, you say, are, "What are you kidding?" But it was so, no, so crazy fun.
0: No, but it, no, but I, <laughs> but I think that part of one of the things that I, that I think used to always Carol Burnett says this about her show and her comedy is that if she were on today, she would not be doing any political humor, because the idea of comedy as an escape is a little bit dimmer now. Because I feel like every Everybody wants to make a statement about something, which is important mm-hmm. and very important. But I do think that there is an element of escapism mm-hmm. that no long, that it isn't quite as prevalent as it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, especially in the land when there were uh, more proliferate multi-camera comedies. So I have a couple more questions for you. So now we've wrapped up the timeline and everything like that that, w- that I wanted to talk about. But so going forward now, if someone came to you right now, if if Jimmy Burroughs came to you today and said, I mean, I would love to build a show around you. What would it look like?
1: Oh, my God. You know, that's so out of the realm of possibility. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even you know never how to know answer that.
0: Who, 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 lo- who loves Mr. Belvedere. If you don't know. Manuel, You know,
1: I was talking to a friend. who shall remain nameless, a very, very hugely successful Broadway star, a man. Mm -hmm. And he's right around my age. He might be a little younger, but just a huge Broadway star. And he has done a lot of television here and there in his career. And he had a series last season or the season before. And he said, you know, this is exactly what I wanted. He said, I play the grandfather. Mm -hmm. I come in. I have one scene it's hilariously funny and I leave and I don't have any of the pressure I don't worry about the ratings I don't worry about anything all I have to do is to come in be funny and walk out again and I, and I, and I have a new TV show mm-hmm. and he said it was the it's the best job he, he ever had for that point in his life he wasn't he said, I don't want to be the lead anymore. I don't want to be the lead in a TV show anymore. It's too hard. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard in multi-camera, but if you're in a single-camera show, it's murder. Of it's course. Just it's murder. It's
0: six, 16, 18 hour days. My yeah.
1: first series was a uh, one-camera show, and it was so hard. It was, And it was, a, just, it was a show that was in the trouble. St- the stamina
0: it, is— Yeah, and I was young. Yeah. I
1: wasn't even 30 yet. And I was exhausted all the time. I was the leading lady. And there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders, especially when you're you're in a show that is very expensive and not successful. Yeah. So I think it would be really nice to be in a show that was hilariously funny, where Mm -hmm. it wasn't, where the older people weren't the butt of the ageist jokes that they often are. Yes. Which I hate. I hate hate where you can be older and competent and interesting and not be made fun of. Mm -hmm. If there was something like that that could be built around that, then my God, that sounds great to me. Yeah, we 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 all dream of an updated like Golden Girls kind of show where you can be really really funny (coughs) and have. I believe
0: um, that actually there is an updated Golden Girls. Golden Girls coming. I know that Stan Zimmerman, who was you know, I know Stan, Mm -hmm. um, was working on one for men. Yeah, but I believe there's actually one now coming with. uh, Oh, I want to say Jane Lynch and Joanna Lumley. I could be be incorrect. (laughs) But uh, can
1: you imagine the two of them together? How great would that be? Well,
0: when I was 12, I wrote um, a spec script. For um, I had this whole idea for a reunion TV movie for The Golden Girls, (laughs) but like that would happen many years later. It was when, it was after uh, right after Estelle Getty died, Mm -hmm. and uh, she and so I thought, well, we okay. So what would have to happen? So I thought, what if the three like Dorothy, Sophia. And Dorothy, Blanche, and Rose hired a a medium to try to contact Sophia from beyond, and that it would just be this whole, you know. To and I had this whole thing that would be like Sally Struthers would be the medium, and it would be this crazy thing, but not to be. Um, but
1: that's a really good idea for for a for an episode. I mean, yeah. I think that's that sounds really funny.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, but but I I don't think that. Though, that that brand of humor is necessarily uh, is necessarily as prevalent anymore. Um, but I do have one more question. I want to go back as I tangent it around everywhere. No. Um, that's good. So who would be your dream team to do this with? One of these shows that's very f- funny. Centres aren't older people, not ageist at all. Do you have a team? Do you have...
1: Oh, I, you know, yeah. I, can't, I can't even make that up. No. I, I, I just don't know. I don't know who's... Well, I'd want my brother Todd to be involved.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. The wonderful Todd Graff.
1: My brother Todd, uh, who wrote and directed a bunch of movies, the one that mm-hmm. a lot of people know is Camp, mm-hmm. which was a huge cult Success. He's worked with all sorts of people. He did a movie with Queen Latifah and Dolly Parton, and he's got a whole bunch of projects all over Hollywood just waiting for the writers to decide what the writers are going to do. And, you know, there, it's just a little unsettling time right now in Hollywood um, in terms of writers. So I mm-hmm. think it, I would like to have my brother there to protect my interests. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it would be great. But um, I love. I, I love Jimmy Burroughs. I think he's great. Uh, I I loved my producers on Mr. Belvedere. I think they had a real—it sounds funny to say this, but there was a real subversive undertone to Mr. Belvedere that you just had to be hip to to understand. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, there were two levels all the time. And knowing Frank and Jeff, we would sit there and go, oh, my God, I can't believe you guys are going to do this. And they'd say, yeah, it'll be—nobody No, will nobody'll know. Nobody will know that this is really happening. And yeah. All sorts of stuff happened. Um, but I, I, there are so many great people that I've worked with. It would just be wonderful to, to, you know what? I, I also like anthology shows, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's kind of fun where you have like a core and then you have short lived stories. Maybe it was the Twilight Zone marathon the yeah, other day. <laughs> of course. Oh, speaking my own. Anthologies language. are really cool, but I wish I could give you some names, but I, I'm I'm trying.
0: That still happens a bit with Ryan Murphy because he has the stable, his stable of people, and they end up Mm -hmm. coming back as different figures. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, you know who I met not too long ago was Mark Cherry.
0: Yes. Oh, from Desperate Housewives, and also a writer on The Golden Girls, I believe. Yes. Yes.
1: And we were the um, Jim Caruso, who has a weekly open mic here in New York Mm -hmm. called Jim Caruso's Cast Cast Party. Party. He comes to L.A. sporadically and does Cast Party in L.A. Mm -hmm. And you never know who's going to get up and sing. But it's always star-studded because we don't get that a lot in L.A. So everybody wants to go. Yeah. And one night, Mark Cherry was there. I had no idea he was a singer. He is like a first-class singer-singer, like crazy good. And so, of course, I had to go over and introduce myself and say, I'm just a big fan and... And you sing great, and he was very complimentary to me. He said, I, I always liked you in your Broadway shows, you know, whatever. Of course. And so um, we had a wonderful, short, you know, 10-minute relationship, but I think his sense of humor and his style is really cool. It would be fun to work with Mark Cherry. Yeah, oh. I, and then have a lot of music in the show, right? Of course. Because he's so musical.
0: Of course, Yeah. <laughs> So I think that's pretty much all I had today. Oh my goodness. But I'm so grateful you came in and talked and talked to me for 45.
1: 45 minutes. It that goes fast, went right? It goes so fast. Well, um I enjoy I enjoy doing shows like this because I feel like I've 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 watched the industry change a lot over the past 40 years that I've been doing TV. Yeah. From three networks. When I started, there were three networks, then Fox came in. And then, and now there's so many ways to get your TV, so many ways, but the bottom line is it has to be a good story. It doesn't matter if you're watching a 10-minute webisode or a two-hour movie or you're binging one of your favorite shows. If the stories aren't there, there's nothing yeah so I always urge everybody that has a good idea that wants to write to write because we need really yeah. good content, yeah, no, yeah.
0: I agree i I mean it, it, you know often people will say, you know, what do you most want to do? And the truth is is any if if the writing is good, I often find that even if people say, oh no, no, I don't I wouldn't want to you know do that but if someone hands you a really good script, it's very hard to say no, of
1: course, you of know course.
0: if, if and the so. boundaries
1: are so blurred. When I started, movie people would not do TV. They just wouldn't do it. And now, and now, they, now everybody does everything. And they'd
0: almost rather. It almost seems. Almost rather. <laughs> of course. Yeah.
1: So it's it's very different. But like I said, you got a good story. People, will, Meryl Streep will do whatever it is if it's a good story. Yeah, it's true.
0: Right. All righty. Well, thank you so much, thank Eileen you, Doug, and Bob Merrill. <laughs> All right. So good to see you. You too. Take good care. Good All right. luck. Rock on.
1: Who doesn't love Lucy?